It is amazing to me how many of us have stories of words that have been spoken over us by people, by parents and grandparents, by teachers, by youth leaders. And maybe it's not that amazing because we're busy being formed. And as people are speaking, as people speak words over us, they shape us and make us and they have incredible influence over us. And I'm sure that you've been formed not only through childhood, but even as an adult, when through words from your boss or perhaps uh, somebody that you've seen in a professional capacity, a doctor or counselor, even in the church, pastors and, and leaders of various groups are able to have power over us with their words. We've got seven kids, and our youngest of seven, Tyden, every single relationship that he has is a power relationship at which he is on the receiving end. He's got older brothers, older sisters, parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches, everybody in his life has got authority over him. He says to me, after lockdown, he says to me, you know, mom, this is about one of his bigger brothers, Sam is this much more taller than me than he was before lockdown. And Sam's already grown this much. The other half, I've shrunk. <laughs> Just everything. And I think of these children, like Tyden, if we have been affected by words spoken over us, what about them? What about the words that we get to exert, the things that we get to say over other people? We, as we could sit here this evening, stand here this evening, and receive fresh words from God, receive grace from God, receive words of identity that can settle us. It's, we don't re just receive them for our own sake. We receive them so that we can give grace to, to the children around us, give grace to those that we are in authority over. Um, obviously, this is not, I'm not just speaking about parenting, although that is the, an obvious place. Teaching is an obvious place. But actually, there's many areas where we are on the power end of a power relationship or the responsible end of a responsible relationship where we get to exert influence over other people. For example, my, our eldest boy, Jed, just started high school in grade eight, and he is doing Zulu as a second language, which apparently is quite unusual. So he's sitting in a class doing first day of school, first day of high school, and he's sitting in the Zulu class with 29 Isizulu-speaking boys who are home language Isizulu-speaking. And for him, he is obviously not Isizulu speaking at home, and they all had an opportunity to stand up, introduce themselves, say where they were from, what school they came from, and obviously he's sitting listening to these guys, not always understanding what everybody is saying, and then it's his turn, and he has to stand up and introduce himself in a foreign language to people who have this language as their home language. Those boys, all of them, are in a, a position of power over Jed in that moment, because they can either mock him, they can laugh at him, or what they did do is burst into applause. They clapped as he finished and as he sat down. And we have, that, we have that opportunity. How are we going to respond in the relationships that we have power? So we've entitled the series, The Social Pandemic. And last week, John was speaking about peer-to-peer -peer relationships. We're speaking about relationships first up because we found that there has obviously been a viral pandemic. We're in a viral pandemic. And the nature of a viral pandemic is that it comes in waves. That means that the more people are infected or the more people that are affected by the virus, it, the virus starts to die down. It means that it slows down. More people being infected means that the virus loses power in our community, in our herd, so to speak. 
the social pandemic that this virus has caused, the isolation, the trauma, the effect that it's had on our mental well-being is not the same. Because the more people that are affected, the more it is perpetuated, the more it is passed on. It is a cycle that actually can go from generation to generation. If we are not careful to be those that are in the church, we are here to bring the kingdom of God into our communities, we are the ones that need to change the cycle. We are the ones that are able to break the cycle. If it is important to be governed, as John taught us last week, in our peer-to-peer -peer relationships, marriages and friendships, equal relationships, if it's important to be governed by righteousness and by humility, how much more in our power relationships, where our words are that much more weighted, that much stronger in their ability to affect the people that we're speaking to, the people that we're treating around us. One of the things I love about parenting, one of the things that makes me so passionate about parenting is the fact that my, my work as a mom, my work as a parent won't end with me. I know that whatever I say, many of the things that I say, many of the things that I teach are going to be taught to my great-great-great-grandchildren. And so there's a wonderful sense of purpose in that. There's a wonderful sense of my work having incredible weight. There's also a crazy sense of responsibility in that when we're talking about dysfunctional relationships, when we're talking about those relationships, what we pass on, being passed on from generation to generation. The effect of this pandemic, because it has affected marriages, parents, people, and the way that we treat each other, could go on for generations. And we're here as a church standing together to say, we want to make a positive influence. We want to have a positive effect on the future of our children and the future of generations. Not only do we have this uh, fight to be humble when we're dealing with peer-to-peer -peer relationships, uh, now being brought into our power relationships that we want humility and gentleness and righteousness, but there's also the temptation of being corrupted by power itself because we know that absolute power corrupts absolutely. As we're given power, we are Power in its nature tempts us to use it and abuse it and use it to get what we want. There's even a precedent in history, I couldn't find the reference, but I, I have read it, where there was a precedent in, I think, early American history, and he noticed in his integrity, he noticed how power was corrupting him. And he actually, when he was asked to stay on for a second term, refused and said, I'm sorry, I actually, my character can't handle it. I can't handle the corruption that this power is causing me. I step down. And so we have that to fight against as well. So how do we handle our power relationships? I want to bring us three common distortions that we can recognize and write in ourselves in order to make a difference in, in those that we have authority over. I'm going to do it by looking at a story in the Bible. It's a story about a Roman centurion. So a Roman centurion would be a man who is in the army in Rome, and he is not the general of the army. He's not in charge of everything, but he is in charge of some people. He's kind of middle of the road in terms of the authority, the reporting lines, where he reports to somebody, he reports to a structure, and there is a structure under him that report to him and that he has authority over as well. So there's this man, the Roman centurion, and he has a servant that is very ill, paralyzed, passing out, suffering terribly, and he has compassion. He's a good leader. He cares about his servant. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, my servant is paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus says, 
would you like me to come and heal him? And we're going to pick it up there in terms of reading from Matthew 8, verse 8 to 9. The centurion is replying to Jesus. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Notice that phrase there, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. So he knows that his soldiers and his servants are not obeying him because of who he is. They're not just obeying him. They're obeying him because he is under authority. Every instruction he gives, every command he gives, they obey because he didn't just make it up. He didn't just say, oh, I feel like you're going now, so go. No, it came from a higher chain of command. And so because they knew that, they obeyed his authority. Now, being a man who got it, his authority was not corrupted. So right here, this is what uncorrupted authority looks like. Uncorrupted power looks like submitted power. It is power that is submitted to a higher power. It is not acting in and of its own accord. Because he understands that, because he has submitted uncorrupted power, this Roman centurion, he recognizes it in Jesus. He watches, he's been watching Jesus for a while, and he sees that Jesus is able to do miracles. He is healing people. He has, he has power. He has authority over sickness, over death in some situations, over the demonic realm, and in his teaching of the scriptures. There is an authority there, and there is a consistency there. Jesus doesn't change the way he is and the rules that he has depending on his mood. Jesus is clearly acting. First of all, there's a higher power that's giving him all this power. Secondly, there is a submission. There's a submitted nature in Jesus because Jesus is consistent and he's consistent to a higher order. He's consistent to a way. He's consistent to a code of conduct, a a morality that clearly shows that there is something that Jesus or someone that Jesus is submitted to. And so because the centurion recognizes this in Jesus, he also knows that Jesus' words are going to come with incredible weight. They're going to come with a weight that is far above what a human is able to have, with an authority that is far above what a human is able to have. When Jesus hears this, he's like, oh my goodness, this Roman centurion's understanding of the chain of authority that I'm in is incredible. I credit it to him as faith. This man has got faith. And he's amazed, and he turns to his disciples and he says, I don't think I've met someone so far in my, in my work that has as much faith as the centurion. And he says to the centurion, you're quite right. You, you are correct in what you've seen. Well done. And your servant is healed. You can go home. And from that moment, the servant is healed. Because the centurion was able to recognize his authority, he was able to receive the gift that Jesus had with that authority that he had to give. John 13 verse 14 tells us that Jesus was a different kind of leader. He was a servant leader. And we often refer to the moment when he is washing feet of his disciples. As a a leader, he's kneeling down in front of his disciples and washing the dirt off of their feet, serving them, caring for them. And it was quite contrary to anything that we've known before. We read in John 13 verse 14, Jesus says this to them straight after he's washed their feet. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also should wash one another's feet. So he explains to them, he says, I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I've washed your feet, now you're going to do the same. So we're going to look at three distortions, three common distortions of power relationships to help us identify where we might fit in. So the first very common distortion, and I think all of us have fallen into all three of these distortions at times, if we're honest. The first common distortion is, I'm on the throne. My power and my authority is used for my good and for what I want. This reminds me of a time in history known as the era of Metternich in the 19th century. And I'm going to back up a little bit in history to see how we landed in this crazy time in history called the era of Metternich. So all the way down here, maybe 100 years earlier, there was the American Revolution. King George was ruling, the English king was ruling the American colony, a little bit like a tyrant. He was just changing the rules on them, changing tax laws. It was completely unfair, and they revolted against him, and they decided that they didn't want him to rule them anymore. So the American Revolution happened. There were a couple of guys, revolutionaries from France, who came there as youngsters to fight in that revolution because they wanted, they believed in revolution themselves. Now they'd seen a victory in France. In the meanwhile, the American Revolution is being celebrated. Independence Day is being celebrated in France. They're waving flags and the revolutionaries from America come across to France. In France, the king and queen, King Louis, Marie Antoinette, many of you remember her because she was completely and utterly vain, selfish, and served for her own purposes. She's the lady who says, let them eat cake if they don't have any bread to eat. She's just ruling completely for herself, enjoying all the privileges without any of the responsibilities. So revolution happens in France. They chop off the heads of King Louis and Marie Antoinette. And then there's this crazy time in France where there's a reign of terror because now there's nobody in charge and they're just chopping off everybody's heads. There's just this crazy revolution going on and anybody who had any authority has their head chopped off. So whether, whether you were a judge, whether you were a leader, whether you had gone to the king's house for a cup of tea one day, you had your head chopped off. Crazy times. Napoleon Bonaparte comes, rises up in history, and he takes advantage of this chaos to say, I'm going to come and help. I'm going to come and bring order. There's a bit of craziness going on. And as he gets more and more power, he becomes corrupted by more and more power. And he sets himself, himself up, straight after their revolution, he sets himself up as king of France. Not just that. He wants to be emperor of the whole of Europe. So he becomes an even worse tyrant than the guys before him, emperor of the whole of Europe, starts conquering all the nations around him, and they eventually manage to club together and get rid of him. And that's when we land in the era of Metternich, where one of the advisors to the Austrian prince was Metternich, and he said to the kings, right, come together. We need to form a, a brotherhood, a band of brothers to stop these revolutions, to stop these people rising up, these crazy independent people wanting to rule themselves from now on, it is absolute rule. It is absolute rule. The kings shouldn't have parliaments. They shouldn't even have constitutions. There is one rule and one rule only. What the king says goes. A little bit like Alice in Wonderland, where the queen just goes, off with his head, and that's the end. The guy, everyone, whatever she says, that becomes the new law, that becomes the judge, the jury, and it is crazy, crazy times. There's this cycle that comes with tyranny. And you might be listening to all this and saying, okay, that's a very fast and very confusing history lesson. What is the point and how does it relate to me and my power relationships? I think in all of us, there's a little bit of tyrant. In all of us, there's a little bit of tyrant. And if you think that's not true, 
ask yourself whether you indulge yourself when you've got a little bit of money. Are you able to spend it on yourself? Are you able to exercise the authority that God has given you to take perfect care of your body, to take perfect care of the things that have been put into your hands? We all have the self that just likes to be indulged a little bit, that just likes to use what we've got for our own gain, use what we have to serve ourselves. The trouble with that, John Eldridge explains to us in this quote, over time, throughout our lives, the self stakes out its own territory within us to assure getting its own way, ordering our world to its likings. It has embedded assumptions and privileges into our psyche. There is a momentum to its desires, motives, and presence in us. As we give a, indulge ourselves a little bit, there is a bit of a momentum to those desires. They start to grow within us. And when we, it started off with taking care of my rights and just being reasonable with my rights, all of a sudden I start to feel as my rights grow that more and more territory belongs to me. And quite frankly, your rights are actually infringing on my rights as well. So it looks a little bit like that Napoleon Bonaparte situation where he first takes control of his own nation, but then slowly he just wants to take control of all the other nations as well. It looks like me just needing a reasonable side of the bed to all of a sudden saying, Richard, I feel like you're actually on my side. In actual fact, I'm pregnant and I think that you should actually only have that little corner over there. Why are you you're infringing on my rights? It looks like me saying, I'm pretty sure I tickled your back for longer than you tickled my back. I'm pretty sure I deserve a little bit. I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be washing the dishes tonight. I'm, if self is rearing its ugly head, in my peer-to-peer -peer relationships, in my equal relationships, you can bet your bottom dollar that self is having a field day in my power relationships. Self is thoroughly enjoying having those people that I'm authority over serving my purposes. Get me a drink. Go and do what I, what I asked you to do. Why? Well, because I'm your mom. That's how it looks, and it's not pretty. You see, the thing with tyranny is it inevitably leads to mutiny. If you've been looking around your staff or your pupils or your younger siblings or your children recently and thinking, where did these tyrants come from? You need to ask yourself, which tyrant are they trying to overthrow? Because tyrants breed little tyrants that try to overthrow the big tyrants, and big tyrants inevitably get beheaded. It is our responsibility to behead the tyrant within us morning after morning so that we do not lead with corrupt power, that we are submitted authority, submitted to a higher power, not for our own sake, not to get what I want, not to make me more comfortable or to indulge myself, but for the sake of what the person who has vested authority in me for, that that is the only purpose that I get to serve. It is vested authority. I only get, I only have authority to get you to accomplish the thing that I have authority for. That's the only place that I have authority in my power relationships. Jesus beheads this whole notion when he washes his disciples' feet. As he washes their feet as a servant leader, I've come to serve you. 
But interestingly, that picture that we, read, that we read about, that verse that we read, doesn't only speak to the first distortion, it actually speaks to the second distortion as well. Because the first distortion is I'm on the throne, the second distortion is they're on the throne. It's all about the kid, it's all about the person that is under me, I just want to please them. And Jesus says, I've washed your feet so that you will learn to wash other people's feet. We are raising people so that they will learn to serve others. We are giving grace to those that we have influence over so that they will learn to give grace to others. What was I going to say? Sorry, I've lost my place quickly. For their sake. You see, the funny thing about this distortion is that it still has me at the center. It still is about me, even though they're on the throne. Why have I put them on the throne? Very often, it's because I want them to show me love. I want them to give me an identity. I want them to say that I'm the greatest leader, that I'm the greatest mom. I read a quote this morning by Steve Jobs who said, if you want people to like you, don't become a leader. Sell ice cream. (laughs) Leadership is given to us, vested in us, for a purpose, for a greater cause. It is not so that people will like us. It is not so that we can have ourselves uh, cherished and adored because we're just the best and are so permissive and so indulgent that we actually are not fulfilling our responsibilities. I was guilty of this just this last week. Our kids were gathered around on the weekend. They'd had a really tough week. Uh, First week of school, cricket matches, early morning training. It had been really exhausting. And then the weekend arrived and they wanted to do something that would really cause them to lose sleep and be tired for the next week. But they ganged up on me and they all started nagging me. And just when I said, well, maybe this one who didn't have crickets, the next one said, but I'm always left out of it. And I also want to join in. And eventually I just thought, oh, I'm going to be so the ogre if I say no in this situation. And so I said, yes. But I first said, go and ask your dad. And then (laughs) daddy also said yes. And we both caved. We did. (laughs) And then we both caved. And the the thing was, The rest of the week, this last week, they were exhausted and tired. And we had to have a little conversation and say, it's not their fault. It was our fault. We allowed them on the throne for our own sake or for whatever reason, our own reputations. They were asking in front of other people. It is our responsibility to care for them for the purposes that we have been given them to care for. And we can't just throw in the towel. We can't just just give up because we want to be liked. I'm on the throne, they're on the throne. The third distortion is there's no one on the throne. The throne has been completely abdicated. This, I think, happens to all of us in leadership at some point in time. I think everybody has this, res- this moment where we just want to drop responsibility. We are sick and tired of the moaning. We're sick and tired of the whining. Or maybe we're even tired of fighting our own will, of trying to behead that self-life every morning. And we're just tired of it. And we end up saying, do what you like. <laughs> Do what you like then. I don't care. And we throw in responsibility. We throw in responsibility. We just abdicate. We unclip our prefix badge, so to speak, and just say, I just can't anymore. I'm done. I'm having a day off. The reason we can't do this is because we are in disobedience when we do that. We are in disobedience to our authority. Our authority has been vested in us. We don't get to just abdicate when we're tired. We don't get to just step away. 
This often happens when the person in authority doesn't realize, doesn't have a revelation that their authority has been vested in them, that it's authorized. And so sometimes you get a teenage boy who's towering over here asking a mom who's only over here, and she feels like she just doesn't have what it takes to say no to him. Or even somebody down here who has got a personality that's up to here, who she just doesn't feel like she is able to say no to him. If it's you versus me, I'm going to lose. But if it's you versus me with authorized authority, there is a stability there. And there's nothing that you, can, you can't push. I can't say, yes, it's not in my power to give you permission to do what you shouldn't be doing because I'm in obedience to a higher power. I have a vested authority. There is a consistency to me. It's what the Roman centurion recognized in Jesus. There was this calm, vested authority calm consistency, because it came from a higher place. He was simply following orders. Sometimes this happens when we we, we abdicate responsibility, when we feel like we've messed up and we don't deserve to have the authority. We like voluntarily hand in the prefect's badge, so to speak. And even that we can't do because it's not in my personality. It's not in my righteousness. It's not in whether or not I'm a better person than the person that I'm in leadership over. I mean, just today, just this morning, I said to Richard, what right do I have to stand up and preach to these people? Many times they could be preaching to me. Like, what, who says? Who says I should be the one finding, finding and searching God for what he has to say to us? But you know what? It actually doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter whether I feel inadequate. It doesn't matter about that because what right do I have rather to step away when God has vested authority? What right do we have to give up, to throw off the mantles? And I believe that there's been throughout today and there's going to continue tonight, there is a moment where God is wanting us to pick up mantles again, to pick up mantles of authority Perhaps, perhaps it's as simple as parenting and the leadership that you have in certain areas and businesses, but even in the church and in the community, that God has got mantles of leadership, giftings that he, wants, that he has given you or he wants to give you, and he wants you to carry them again, not to feel disqualified, not to, feel, not to allow those voices from your past or even from today to reign over you, but that you would lay them down, stand on the firm foundation of the gospel, the firm foundation of God saying, I am pleased with you. I'm a good, good father, and I have authority for you. I have a job for you. Don't throw in the towel. That's disobedience, no matter how inadequate you feel. Don't abdicate from what God has for you to do. I'm going to ask you to stand at that moment so that we can just take a moment to hear God The viral pandemic has come in waves, but the social pandemic is going around in cycles. And we are able, as the church, to be those who stand up and say, do a work in me, God. Do a work in me, God, that I would deal with my relationships with grace and humility, but also with the authority that you have put in me as a believer, as a Christian, as a member of Anthem. Would I exercise that authority in my family, in my community, in my place of work? 